Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. And make sure to go sign up for the annual What People Want From Work survey. It's open until August 31st, so don't wait. Today's episode features David Dodson, the author of The Manager's Handbook. So this episode is all for the managers out there. We talk about how managers need to move away from hiring based on gut feelings and move more towards an outcomes-based way of hiring. We talk about performance management, exit interviews, and the trap we all find ourselves in, whether you're a manager or not, is the constant state of busyness and firefighting. We talk about how managers can break away from that. So you're going to find a lot of useful tips in there, whether you manage people or your HR professional who is providing resources for managers out there. This is a really good episode for you. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with David Dodson, the author of The Manager's Handbook. David, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course, Brandon. We're here to talk about your book, The Manager's Handbook, Five Simple Steps to Build a Team, Stay Focused, Make Better Decisions, and Crush Your Competition. I was telling you right before we started recording that the the audience of this show, a lot of HR professionals, because we started out as an HR podcast, a lot of managers and leaders listen to this podcast. And of course, we want to make sure that the owners of these organizations or the, the senior leader has all the tools that they can do to build an effective workplace. And I think that manager level, that layer is so important. I think there's a lot of, a lot of leaders have, have gotten it wrong. So I'm excited to dive in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I also teach at Stanford, as you know, and we have a lot of guests coming in and, and Brandon, every time a student says, what's the most important thing you do? They say, manage people 100% of the time. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's gotten more complicated, especially as a lot of organizations move to hybrid. I think in large part, people haven't really changed. It's just the tools that we're using are. And, you know, new managers, especially, they're not really trained to be able to lead effectively. So your book lays it all out. And I'm excited to dive into some of the pieces. So one of the areas, and in fact, the first part is about building a team. And for many managers, I think this is tough because they get hiring wrong. And when you hire wrong, there's a trickle-down effect. It can ruin teams. It can ruin the culture. So it is a broad question, but how can managers improve the way that they hire? Well, there's a right and a wrong way to do it. And so, you know, I went through this process when I was a manager and I had a pretty lousy hiring rate. In fact, there was a study I came across doing this book looked at 7,000 hiring managers and 46% of the hires failed within the first 18 months. And only 19% Brandon achieved unequivocal success. I mean, that's a horrible failure rate in the most important thing that we do. So what I did, if you can believe this, is I, I went to the bookstore and I bought every good hiring book that I could get my hands on. So it was about like six or seven books. I told it, people in the company, I was the CEO, I said, I'm not coming in for a week. And I just sat there and I read the books. And so it was a whole stack, making notes, making notes, making notes. And I ended up with 
20 pages of notes after reading like a thousand pages of books. It was an insanely bad use of time. However, we had these country managers at the time in this uh, company. We were in seven countries. We were 0 for 7 in hiring. Took those 20 pages. I said, we're going to do these. We went seven for seven after that. And and my hiring rate is so much better than it was before. But the problem is, is that who the heck's got time to slog through you know, 1,200 pages of hiring books. So this is my accidental book. I didn't go out to write a book, but I said, I want other people to read those 20 pages. So I take 20 pages, I break it down to nine things, do these nine things, and your hiring rate will go up a lot. I'm I'm saving your listeners the trouble of reading a dozen books. I I love that. Now, when you read all those books, I'm sure you had a lot of ahas, otherwise you wouldn't have wrote 20 pages of notes. But what were some of the things that you did before when you 0 for 7 and you you read those books, had a lot of notes, and you said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna change our approach." What were the a few things that you changed that made a drastic like difference in the way you hired? Yeah, I went compl- I completely shifted from hiring based on gut feel to hiring based on outcomes. So there's this great story in Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book where Neville Chamberlain went to meet Hitler. And he was enchanted by Hitler. And he went back and he talked about how Hitler shook his hand with a double-handed handshake. And he was a man to be trusted. And of course, he got Hitler all wrong. Winston Churchill got Hitler right because Winston Churchill never met Hitler. That was the key. He was basing it on objective data. That's the breakthrough with hiring. So when you go to hire somebody, you have to first have a scorecard and say, these are the objectives that I want. I'm not looking for a Stanford graduate. I'm not looking for someone with the X number of years experience. I'm looking for someone who can do certain things. And then you ask yourself, well, how am I going to figure that out? And then you go interview against that scorecard. And it's harder to do, but the round trip of hiring the wrong person, suffering through that for months, letting them go, starting all over again is way worse. I love that idea of having a scorecard uh, during the hiring process. Would it be different based on the function or even the role itself? Does a, Is it company-wide a similar scorecard? I, I'm curious like how you structure it. Yeah, 100%. I was on a call with two CEOs yesterday, and we were identifying the two or three key positions that they both need to have filled, and we were building a scorecard. It was the three of us on a Zoom. Every one of those scorecards were different. You know, so for example, for a salesperson, you're not looking for credentials. You're saying, I want someone who can drive sales. And then depending upon the company and what the company sells and so forth, you're going to be looking for things that interview process that will drive that process. And you're going to do things to ignore, you know, attributes, likability, all that kind of stuff, which just proves that someone's good at interviewing, but not good at, at, at driving sales. Uh, you know, another thing that I learned, which I am sold on 100% is team interviewing. You know, you have to have several people looking at the person at the same time. When you go through and like one person interviews someone, then the next person, then Brandon, et cetera, we all have a separate data set. It's like the, you know, the fable of the blind villagers touching the elephant and each one, you know, the person touching the leg thinks it's a tree. The person touching the trunk thinks it's a snake because everybody's got different data. But if everybody heard the same things, then you can make much better decisions. I mean, we literally, we, we were seven for seven on hiring country managers by doing it this way. Fascinating. Yeah, I always wondered about what's more effective, individual, like one-on-one interviews, team interviews. I've seen panel interviews where it's like, you know, 10 people in a room against one candidate. And that, that seems intimidating. Do What do the candidates think about that? Oh, that's a horrible way to do it, Brandon. I, I, I agree with you. It's intimidating. It's like a press conference. Yeah. Um, the way to do it is, let's say that you and I are interviewing somebody, we'll call her Michelle, okay? And what'll happen is, is that, let's say I'll be the lead. 
and I'm leading the interview and we, we've synced up before and we know what, what the scorecard is. And at the end of each section, I'll say, Brandon, what questions do you have? But I'm leading the interview. By the way, you are in the pole position because you don't have to think of the next question. I mean, you get to just sit back and absorb and take notes. So when, when I'm doing it, I usually prefer not to be the person asking the questions. I want to be able to just sit there and absorb and, and concentrate on what the person's saying. And then afterwards, you and I would get together and, and we talk about how she rated against the scorecard. Do we want to have her come back again? But it's a very, very organized process. It's not these kind of like crazy where everybody's showing off with their fancy questions. Yeah. What's interesting about like your approach to hiring uh, for outcomes and then building a scorecard is there's a reframing of the questions that we're probably asking. Like we might ask really broad, basic questions like what's your biggest weakness? What's your biggest, you know, like those are basic and dumb questions that people can dance around. But if we're structuring our interviews for outcomes, what sort of questions are like, how would you frame a question up for, for outcomes? So, uh, I got to tell you this one really quick story. My favorite interview question used to be when you shut the refrigerator, can you tell whether the light went out or not? And that was so dumb. I thought, oh, I'm testing their creativity. I was just sort of showing off with a funny riddle. So now, so I might ask you, Brandon, so tell me an example of where you drove sales. And you give an answer and say, well, tell me more. And in my book, I lay out sort of how you drill down. And then you ask, well, did you hire people for that? And were they people that you inherited or did you hire them? How did they work out? And you, and you drill down on specific things. You don't, you don't stay at 10,000 feet. You don't have to have analyzed everything that they did. You just drill down two or three places and you're going to know so much about whether they are able to drive sales or not. You know, if you ask them where they, can they build a, t a sales team? How many people have you hired? What were their names? How many people did you inherit? How many people worked out? The ones that didn't work out, how long did you keep them for? How do you like to interview? You know, pretty soon you're going to have a really good sense of whether this person can build a team or not. And by the way, in the book, I lay all this out. I, I literally, at the end of the chapter, I have all these questions. Yeah, I think that what's interesting to me is I think most people are not trained, like hiring managers, they're not trained on how to interview people. And, you know, early on in a manager's career, if they make mistakes and they just use canned questions that, you know, the HR person gave them, they're probably not drilling down three layers deep like you're just describing. So are there steps that managers can take to really hone in on their their interviewing skills? Because it is an art. It, it is an art, but there's a framework to it and you work within the framework. So for example, it's important to know how someone's past performance is, right? Not their credentials, what school they went to, but their past performance. But I talk about the three Ps, which is prior, plan, and peers. So if I say, you know, Brandon, we'll just stick with the sales manager thing because it's easy. How did your sales do this year? And you go, oh, they're up 14%. Say, or, or let's say you say they're a million dollars. How does that compare to last year? Okay, that's the first P, prior. And then, okay, and you say, well, last year was 800,000. Now it's a million. I go, that's great. How did that compare to your peers? Well, my peers were up 40%. Okay, well, then I later find out that you did an acquisition, Okay. Or I say, how did that compare to plan? So what you see, though, is there's a structure. So I can do it conversationally. And, you, and you know, I'm not going, okay, Brand, I'm going to ask you my first P, my second P, my third P. I mean, that, that's not a, a good interviewing style, but I have a structure around it. So in the book, The Manager's Handbook, I walk through those structures. So as, you, as you're doing this interviewing, you, you have a framework that you're walking through. Yep. I love it. So once we get past the hiring, let's say we, we nail it. We've got somebody that we're onboarding. You said that the first 100 days of a new job are chock full of uncertainty and awkwardness. So how can managers 
set up their new hires for success in those first hundred days. Because I'll tell you, like I've hired several people during this pandemic where it's remote work. I've hired somebody across the country and it's just so much different than when you are in person with somebody all the time. So it's gotten a lot harder, I think now because you can hire talent from wherever, but those hundred days, I know they're important. What can we do? Yeah. So I, I ended up calling it the hundred day window. In fact, I have the whole chapter. It's called the hundred day window because it turns out that between 40 and 60% of new hires fail within the first 18 months. And, and by the way, those aren't bad hires. A lot of those people just quit. And if you are very careful about attending to this hundred day window, turnover drops by 35%. That's pretty big, right? So, and the reason is, is that it's those hundred days that the connective tissue is built between the person and the company. And once you've got that connective tissue, then you've got sort of inertia working in your favor instead of out of your favor. So while I know you mentioned remote workplace, which absolutely makes it more challenging, just take, for example, where someone's going to work. And during that 100 days, that's where they figure out where to park, what time to leave, which grocery store to go to, how the health plan works, how to get a new laptop, how to get your laptop fixed, all those things. And then the friendships around it. Um, millennials, more than any other generation before, are building their friendships in the workplace. So you get those friendships built. And then you don't want to leave because you don't want to leave your friends. You got your routine. But in that 100 days, you're very vulnerable. By the way, I always looked for examples of the really best people. And one of the best companies is, is Madison Reed. They're really disrupting the hair care market. And they're growing at about 50% a year. So they're adding on a ton of employees. So Amy Arrett, who founded the company, is a good friend of mine. I, I talked to her about it. I said, what do you do to onboarding? And she has a very specific, scalable plan that she takes care of during those first 100 days. And her turnover dropped considerably. Incredible. Now, imagine like within those first 100 days, you want to set the tone for how performance management is going to be handled. I know a lot of great managers, they do regular check-ins, like one-on-ones. They, they do 360 reviews, all that. What, you know, for the, the most successful teams that you've led, What's the perfect performance management structure? I, I like instant performance management. I mean, we just need to rip up all this once a year we get together or twice a year we get together and we hold you in judgment. I mean, can you imagine running an athletic team like that where you just wait till the end of the season and told people how they did? I mean, it's insane, but we, but we do that. But instant performance management, when you see something good, bad, whatever that you want to reinforce, you do it when it's all top of mind and you do it with radical candor which is that, and you have to build a, a relationship of trust, which is not that hard to do because they want it. You both want it. So it's sort of like you're both in love. You just have to say it out loud. And you say, I'm giving you radical candor on this because I care about you, because I want you to succeed. I want you to be great. And you bring it on. Paul English, who was one of the founders of kayak.com, really, he was the one who was a, a turning point for me because he told, he told me the story. He was, he had sold a company to Intuit and he was the CTO at Intuit for a while. They were trying to sell a different company to Oracle and they were meeting with Larry Ellison, who was the CEO at Oracle at the time. And afterwards, they were walking out of the parking lot and Paul's boss pulled him aside and said, Paul, I need to give you some feedback on the meeting. And he told him something he had done wrong. And what Paul told me was that Every other job he had had, they would have either just let it go or waited until the end of the year. While it was all fresh in their mind, they dealt with it. They got their arms around it. Paul learned a bunch and he developed from there. And from that point on, he and many others have scrapped the once a year performance evaluation. I was talking to that very subject with a colleague of mine and we were saying how 
oftentimes we're not giving the radical candor because of our own ego. It's about how we're going to feel when we deliver that feedback and we don't know what the reaction is going to be. And, and it's awkward for us. And so that's why people don't do it. But I think if you have relationships in those first hundred days that we're talking about, you, you build those relationships and there's trust, a foundation of trust and an understanding like, hey, I'm going to give you feedback in the moment and you're going to do the same. You know, people are managing up, then it's a lot easier to deliver feedback like that. It is. And in my book, The Manager's Handbook, I'd lay out a like paint by numbers way to instill radical candor in your organization. Because you can't just kind of go there and announce it one day. You have to build it. I, I have four steps for building radical candor in a short period of time. And then you got to constantly reinforce it. So in my classroom, for example, I have a screen that goes up before we even start the class. Every single class has got four pictures and one of them is candid advice, or it's how I show you that I care about you as a manager. So at some point, people will move on. And I think it's an opportunity to get feedback from them about their experience, management experience, the culture, whatever. What are some great exit interview questions that you've used to really maximize that opportunity as they're walking out the door? Yeah. So first of all, people oftentimes make the mistake of having the manager do the exit interview. The HR professional or someone that's not the direct report should be doing an exit interview because what you're trying to do is you're trying to open up the aperture and get the maximum amount of information. Well, there's people, there, there are things that you're not going to say to your, your manager, especially if it pertains to the managers, the way they manage the company. So for example, you know, what ultimately led you to accept the new position? What would have changed your mind about leaving? Uh, what would make this a better place for people to work? And if you notice, every single one of those questions cannot be answered yes or no. They have to be answered with a paragraph. And you ask these nice open-ended questions. And in the book, The Manager's Handbook, I describe how you need to be able to be patient and be comfortable with pauses and pull out the information. You might ask, you know, oh, what did you like best and least about your job? you feel like your manager gave you what you needed to succeed? The, the exit interview is one of the secret weapons that hardly anybody uses because it, you've got sort of one chance to talk to the person who you just broke up with or they just broke up with you and find out what went wrong when they don't have the normal agenda that, a, that, that someone has while they're working for you. A couple of things I want to ask you and follow up to that. So can this be done asynchronously? Meaning, can I send this out via email and have them respond? Or is it always best to have an in-person conversation? And then once you get that feedback, what do you do with it? Yeah, definitely not sent out. You need to build trust with the person and have a conversation. You need to be able to have a follow-up. If they said, what do they like best about the company? And they say, eh, you know, I, I, I like the people. Well, that's something someone can write on a form. Well, that you haven't learned anything yet. Really? Well, tell me, tell me more about that. And they tell you more and say, oh, can you give me an example of that? Hmm. Can you give me an example of someone at the company who was especially good at that? Hmm. Okay, so you can see, Brandon, how... Wow. I mean, now I'm really mining a lot of information. And then what you do with it afterwards is you have to treat it like a 360 review, which is you have to curate the information. Then you have to do something with it. I saw, I wish I had it at my fingertips, Brandon, because it, it was remarkable. But the percentage of exit interview responses that just go in the personnel file and are never read. Like, what is the point of that? <laughs> How's that going to make you better, better business? So you have to take it and you, it has to be curated. Maybe you have to take out some things that are indelicate. So the person who gets the information can receive it in a way that helps them be a better manager. And sometimes you have a development plan around it. So, you know, if, if you did an exit interview on someone that worked for me and you found out that I was very unapproachable or fill in the blank, whatever, it, it's not just, hey, David, these are things that you're not doing well. It's got to be, hey, David, these are things that will make you a more effective manager. Let's put together a plan on how you can get to where you want to be. 
And then you build a development plan around that. In chapter eight, you wrote that activity is not progress. I want you to unpack that. What do you mean by that? You know, it is so true today, more, more than anything, because there's so much incoming communication and traffic and stuff that we can sit there and just bang away at our email or our Slack channel all day long. And we're, our fingertips are exhausted and we actually haven't gotten anything done. And so that's really separating out. Are you, are, are you moving your company forward or are you just being busy? And back before email, the typical manager got 1,000 pieces of communication a year. Okay. Today it's 30,000 and growing. Because all this stuff has not made us more productive. It's made it easier for us to waste each other's time. But we all kind of know that. I could write in a chapter, hey, you know, email's a big waste of time. Be more efficient. Well, everybody's just going to revert back to what they did yesterday. So I looked for just a handful of really easy things that you can do that don't require downloading an app, don't require any new technology that will improve your productivity. And for me, I tracked it. It was 80 minutes a day that I improved by just doing three things. And this came from actually an interesting study. A good friend of mine, Michael Porter, who is kind of the the Michael Jordan of MBA uh, faculty, and he did this study on 149 managers, and they collected 60,000 pieces of data. They they tracked them in 15-minute increments, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. These were all high-performing managers, CEOs. And what they found is not only were they very brutal with how they manage their day, but none of them were using any of these kind of like fancy productivity tools. They were just doing basic stuff that didn't require a lot of implementation that saved them a ton of time. And that's what I lay out in the book. You know, the book, the manager's handbook is basically, I identified five areas, five skill areas that all high performing managers shared. And then I went and I looked at the highest performing managers and I studied them. I saw what they did. And then I put it in a book and I tried to put them in as few words as possible, as few pages as possible, because who's got time? You know, if you don't have time for a dozen hiring books, well, what about the onboarding books? And what about the performance feedback books? And what about the, you know, time management books? Right. Well, as we wrap up this conversation, what's one key takeaway that's in your book that somebody listening couldn't get from going through an MBA program? Well, MBA programs are broken when it comes to this stuff. But I would say, since just because since we were talking about it, this saves me 70 minutes every day. I took all of my 30-minute meetings and cut them down to 20 minutes. And all my 60-minute meetings cut them down to 40 minutes. I went back and looked over weeks and weeks of my calendar and said, what would happen if I did that? It was 70 minutes a day. It's easier to pass a new debt ceiling in Washington, D.C. than it is to get 60 minutes on my calendar. And you know what? We get just as much work done in 20 and 40 minutes as we used to in 30 and 60 minutes. Think about it. 70 minutes every day. That's incredible. I mean, that alone should help managers like prioritize like what's most important if they cut down on their meetings because they're putting them back to back to back. And then in between, they're doing chats and emails. And they're like, to your point earlier, they're not getting anything done. Oh, and, and, and now with Zoom and cell phones and everything, it is so easy to connect with people that we are, you know, before Zoom, the average manager spent 23 hours a week in meetings. You know it's more than that because with a couple of clicks, I can invite 10 people on a Zoom meeting of which, by the way, eight of the 10 are checking their email or doing their shopping during the meeting, right? Yep. <laughs> I hate to be so cynical, but you know, no, let's, call it, let's call it spade a spade, right? Right. Well, David, this has been such a great discussion. There's so much more in your book. Your book really is a blueprint for how to be an effective manager and, and you've done a lot of research and data behind it. You've done a lot of reading too. 
uh, as you discussed earlier. So where do you want to point people to? Any parting thoughts before we leave? I would just say that I wrote the book that I wish someone had handed me when I was managing. And I wanted to write a book that was each chapter was in as few pages as possible, efficiently written for someone who was really busy. You know, I'm drawn to the story of uh, Roy Halladay. He was a pitcher and he pitched this perfect game in 2010 and which is really hard to do. No pitcher has done it twice. But what struck me was not what he did, but what his pitching coach told him when he was going out on the mound. Uh, Rich Dubie, who's who's pitching coach at the time, he said, go out there and try to be good. If you go out there and try to be good, you get a chance to be great. And I feel like learning these skills gives you a chance to be great. That's well said. My guest today has been David Dodson. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to be here. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.